Lord, now we ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece. And Lord, that um, what you have for us today will be received by hungry, eager um, followers of you so that we can be um, fashioned and shaped by your truth toward being more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I have a question for you. If, and this may not be for our visitors, but if you were called away from Gateway Bible Church for some reason, maybe it was a job change, um, maybe there was other circumstances that meant that you would have to leave Gateway and go to another church, the question would be this. How would you leave the church? In other words, what shoes would you leave that needed to be filled? How would your presence and your impact in the church affect the church because of your leaving? Would the church be losing a faithful servant eager to learn, eager to pursue Christ on their own, and eager to serve according to their gifts? Or would the church really not feel much at all? Of course, that question begs the question, how involved are you in the body of Christ? And how impactful is that involvement on the body of Christ that you are partnering with? The Apostle Paul has been moving through this letter, and he, he's moved from identifying Timothy as a beloved son to a good soldier to an approved workman, and now as we look at this passage, he's going to encourage Timothy and charge Timothy and, and appeal to Timothy to be an honorable vessel. And here this honorable vessel is likened to one who calls upon the Lord from a pure heart and is also identified as the Lord's servant. Now one of the things that we have to recognize as we study God's word, is that we need to study God's word in its context. If we came to this passage of scripture and all we did was look at just this text, we actually may come away without seeing the full impact of what Paul is saying to Timothy that he wants him to do. What's going on here is the apostle Paul is challenging Timothy now about what it means to be a faithful teacher in the context of the church. And that then ultimately is our premise, that is our proposition today. And of course, as I mentioned, you have this idea of the servant of the Lord and the vessel that is honorable reflecting on what it means then to be a faithful teacher. Now, to put it another way, our text reveals the kind of teacher or the kind of teachers that God uses. Is the teacher ashamed to be teaching God's word? Hopefully, the answer is no. Is the teacher careless in handling the word of God? Hopefully, the answer is no. Is the teacher carefree about the pursuit of holiness? No. Is the teacher arrogant, quick-tempered, self-centered? Again, hopefully, no. Is this teacher just a person who puts on the Christian uniform and shows up every Sunday to play? Hopefully the answer is no. Now the question also would be, is this teacher the kind of person that is growing, pursuing Christ, and serving God day by day? And hopefully the answer would be yes. Now I want to use a little bit of a sports analogy to kind of help us think through what's going on in this text. Oftentimes, let's say in, in, on a basketball team, there's five players that are on the court, and the goal of everyone on that team is to not sit on the bench, but to become a starter on the team. And so there's a sense in which what Paul is saying here is this, don't be satisfied with sitting on the bench. I played high school varsity basketball. I know you look at me and say, really? I did. I made the team. And when the coach 
finally put me in. He, he passed the word down the line. You know, it was one of those things, you know, hey, Rod, come in, and who knows what it turns out to be by the time it got to me, because I was the last guy down the bench. But I wanted to play. I wanted to get out there. I was part of the team. And so think of it this way. This text is speaking to all of God's church who are part of Team Christian, saying you need to stop sitting on the bench and work hard at becoming a starter for the glory of God. In other words, we all have the privilege and the opportunity of serving the Lord in various ways, and in particular, in the area of teaching. But the question is, what are we doing with that opportunity? Well, the reality is, we're all teachers. We've talked about this before. We're all counselors. We're all people who give advice. And someone asks you a question about the Bible, hopefully you don't just say, well, I don't know. You probably respond by saying, well, the Bible says, or here's what God says. And we all are teachers in one sense. Now, there may be obviously a, a, a formal sense where, where Paul is speaking to Timothy about the, the, the teaching ministry of the leadership of the church. But we also recognize that this is written to the church and all of us have a responsibility of handling the Word of God. You fathers in your homes have a responsibility of handling the Word of God. You mothers even in the homes have a responsibility of handling the Word of God as you're raising the children. We're all teachers. And so the Apostle Paul has been speaking to Timothy in this passage, beginning at verse 14, where he, if you remember from last week, he instructs Timothy about the kind of teaching that is needed in the church. And he was saying, we don't need a kind of teaching that is war words, that is irreverent babble, that is really heretical. And there was an example of Hymenius and, and Philetus as that heretical false teaching that was present in the church. And now the focus is on, okay, with that going on, what kind of teachers are needed in the church? So it's important that we recognize this, this, the, these two realities, the presence of false teaching and the presence of false teachers that are always, in a sense, at work, poking their head into the church, finding their way into the context of the body of Christ. And so teachers need to know how to respond to both in a way that honors God. And this emphasis on teaching and teachers will help guide us as we fashion our interpretation of this passage. So, what does Paul say to Timothy that we're, we as teachers of the word must take to heart? This is what he counsels. This is the headings. You can fill them in if you want. Number one, he's going to counsel him on three things. Becoming an honorable vessel. Becoming an honorable vessel. Secondly, remaining an honorable vessel. And the third thing would be serving as an honorable vessel. All right? So how does one become an honorable vessel? That's the point now of verses 20 and 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And so he begins this with an illustration now, some of you have been fans of a show on TV that's been out now for four seasons called Daunton Abbey. How many Daunton Abbey people are there? Right? We have one. All right, good. Um, so, it's a very popular show. I know some of you are like, like this, and I couldn't see your hands, right? Because you're not sure if I'm going to you know, say something bad or something like that, right? But in this show, it, it really it, it depicts life upstairs in the house where the family lives, where those who have... The money, of course, they're land rich um, and cash poor, but they're still the upper crust of society. And then you have the downstairs. Those are all the servants and all the stuff that happens with the servants. And it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a story in the sense of seeing Edwardian life in that kind of manor house. But here's some rules that were part of the reality of a home like that that I dug up. If you meet a lower servant, you should walk past, leaving them unnoticed. You will spare them the shame of explaining their presence. 
Sounds like a fun environment, doesn't it? Or if you meet one of your betters in the house, endeavor to make yourself invisible. Give room, turn your back, avert your eyes. Can I just say at the outset, there's something beautiful about the body of Christ, about the church of God, that there are no betters in the church of God. There are no lowly people in the church of God. The body of Christ, the church, brings everyone together on the same plane to say we are all children of God, servants of God, followers of Christ. Now, can you imagine living in that kind of a context, that kind of restraining society? What would it be, what would it be like to live like that? Now, if you were a master, it would be great. If you were a servant, um, it would be difficult. Now, if you're a master, I think you'd probably get annoyed. You know, I can put that jacket on myself. Thank you very much if you've seen the shows. Constantly having a servant around you, fussing at this and fussing at that. But that was the context of that life. Now, Paul uses the analogy of a great house to paint a picture so that we can understand what a faithful teacher of God's word is to be like. But, friends, it's different than that picture I painted about Danton Abbey. His point is not to make a distinction between the spiritual elite and the spiritually dull, or leaders and followers, or the smart and the simple, or the, the gifted and the not-so-gifted. What Paul is doing in this illustration is this. He, first of all, is presenting a great house. This great house is a depiction of the church, okay? This church that's built on the foundation. It's the entire church of God, the body of Christ, composed of all true believers. But he's speaking to a local group that would be the church in Ephesus, of which Timothy is the pastor. And then he talks about these vessels, vessels that were used in a variety of different ways. Domestic tools, utensils, bowls, furnishings. They're all needed for the running of the house. And most likely, Paul is using four different kinds of material. That's what he's saying there. It would appear that these vessels that Paul is speaking of are similar in nature. And so often we thought of them as bowls, so to speak, that could be used in the serving of food, that kind of stuff. Now, the point of the vessels is that they represent individual believers. So what we don't have here is a picture of unbelievers in the church, and believers in the church. These are all assumed to be believers in the church. So you have these honorable vessels and these dishonorable vessels. The honorable vessels of gold and silver, these were vessels that would be prominently displayed in the house or vessels kept for use at special occasions. So in our context... It's the stuff that you bring out for special occasions when guests are coming over. It's, it's the stuff you're going to put out for your Thanksgiving meal. It's your best china. It's your silver utensils. It's that fine cutlery. It's that thick, fuzzy towel for the restroom, right? It's that nice-smelling soap. It's those special cups for, for drinking coffee and tea, right? It's all that best stuff because you want to put on a good display. Then there are the dishonorable vessels of wood and clay. These were the common, simple, unattractive, dirty vessels. And they were vile because some of them are used for waste and some of them are used for human waste. So in our context, it's the stuff we use every day that we really don't mind getting dirty or using repeatedly. So paper plates, plastic knives and forks, cracked plates, chip bowls, thin and wimpy wash towels, stained coffee mugs, and the like, okay? Now, since the great house, the church, is made up of both honorable and dishonorable vessels, which are all part of the body of Christ, they don't distinguish between true believers and false believers. Now, Jesus speaks about that in the parable of the wheat and tares and the sheep and the goats. You can go there to see that distinction. But this is focusing on the body of Christ, the true body of Christ. So what's, the, what's different about an honorable vessel and a dishonorable vessel if they are all true believers? So let's think through the honorable vessel first. The honorable vessel are believers who are not ashamed of the gospel, who are following the pattern of sound words, who are guarding the gospel. These are all themes that we've looked at so far in this letter. They are good soldiers, disciplined athletes, 
hardworking farmers from the beginning of chapter 2. They are the ones who are enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel. The dishonorable vessels are believers who are ashamed of the gospel. They're believers who take sound teaching lightly, who are careless with the gospel. They are distracted soldiers, lazy athletes, slothful farmers. They are the ones who are holding onto and allowing or promoting false teaching as well as false teachers within the church. Honorable vessels are careful to avoid word wars, irreverent babble, and heresy by carefully handling the word of God. They want to be mindful to guard the gospel and sound teaching. Dishonorable vessels are careless with the word of God and immerse themselves in all kinds of harmful, calamitous, false teaching. They're not aware of or take lightly the damage that false teaching brings to the body of Christ. You can see this disparity. You can see different kinds of people. There's attitudes now about the nature of false teaching, about the nature of teaching that is going on within the context of the church. What kind of teacher are they going to be? A teacher that handles the word of God carefully or the teacher that's just like, ah, it's okay. Now, let's just step back a little bit. In the context of a society that is anti-Christian, that mocks our determination to stand on the word of God and ridicules us because we actually believe that God has spoken to us through his word, it is understandable that some Christian leaders and teachers are giving in to the pressure to allow a little bit of false teaching, to turn a blind eye to word wars and these irreverent babbles, hoping that they'll just go away, thinking that they won't do much damage or they'll just grow out of it. And we must be honest, and I'll just be honest with you. It is, it is hard to be that person who's constantly standing for the truth where you're living in a context where even in the body of Christ, there is so much false teaching that is in bookstores, that's on the radio, that's all over the place. And you end up finding yourself constantly saying, do I have to say something again? Do I have to point out that this person is not teaching the truth? Do I have to be that kind of wah-wah naysayer all the time? And there comes a point where you're just like, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. Yet, a faithful teacher does because they have a great responsibility before God to guard the gospel, to follow the pattern of sound teaching, and to not be ashamed of what God has revealed in his word. But friends, when, when you're under the barrage, it's so much easier to say, you know what, I'm just going to just let this one go. So just as Timothy had to deal with men like Hymenaeus and Alexander and Philetus, men who Paul denounces, so we will have men and women who are false teachers, whose false teaching is taking root in our church. And friends, this is no small matter. It's no small matter for the, the people in Ephesus. It's no small matter for us here at Gateway. In fact, the reality is that false teaching permeates our church in far more sophisticated ways than it permeated the church in Ephesus. Because you can literally walk out of here and turn your radio on and you can listen to something that is so contrary to what's being said from this pulpit. And you can download things from the internet and you can, you can read things that are out there. There's so many different ways that false teaching creeps in and it's under the guise of truth. Our friends in Bolivia, if you remember, went through a struggle where they had to face the false teaching of witness Lee and the recovery movement that basically said, we need to go back to the church it, like it was in the early church before it was tainted. And they're, they're, they're basically trying to stir things up in the body of Christ in Bolivia. But, but Matthias, under his leadership and his patience and his guidance, there has been difficulty. There have been homes that have been upset, but, but God's work has continued on and there's been great protection because of the teaching of the word of God. But false teaching is prevalent, friends. Now, here's the application. How can someone become an honorable vessel? Well, in order to be a vessel for honorable use, he must be 
cleansed. That's what Paul is saying here. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now notice, this is not a God-cleansing. This is a self-cleansing. And it's a word in the Greek, catharsis. It means a thorough cleansing, a thorough purging. It's something that a, 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 that a vessel must determine to do himself or herself. You want to move from being a dishonorable vessel to being an honorable vessel, you have to do the hard work of cleansing. Now the assumption here is that person is already, you might want to say, cleansed. They're already declared righteous by God. But now they have to personally cleanse themselves. But a cleaning of what? Is Paul calling Timothy to, to root out all the false teachers in the church? And the answer is no, although in other places he does tell Timothy to do that. What he's focusing in on here, if you are going to be a faithful teacher in the church, you have to cleanse yourself of the false teaching that you have picked up along the way. You have to be a pure teacher, one that is faithfully proclaiming the word of God, not somehow picking bits and pieces up of false teaching along with the teaching of the word of God. So you must choose to be a vessel of honor. You must choose to be uh, following the path of cleansing in order that that, that goal is, uh, is realized. It's your responsibility. And if you want to be set apart as holy, useful, and ready, it will involve some rigorous cleaning, some personal scrubbing, It'll mean taking some spiritual wire wool through your theological grid so that you will be in conformity with the gospel rather than somehow connected to an area of false teaching that will hinder you to be a faithful teacher. So it means cleansing your minds of the kinds of false teaching that is unique to us. And so I just thought of three different areas here. There's more that we could talk about, but I was just thinking about our congregation just by means of illustration to help you think through what Paul is actually saying here. But as it applies to us, here's a context. There are a number of you that grew up in a Catholic context. You were saved out of Catholicism. And you might still have some some inclinations, some, some beliefs, maybe some, some habits, some things about the Catholic tradition that still appeal to you. The formality of it. Maybe it's the, the kneeling. Maybe it's the, the incense. Maybe it's just kind of the, 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 the regality of stuff that was happening while you're in the church service that you're just like, oh, I wish I'd had some of that. And so there's still some lingering presence there. And yet you are truly a child of God. You're truly a follower of Christ, but you haven't cleansed yourself from the area of false teaching that is still niggling at you. You still need to scrub away the residual false teaching from your soul. And then I would say uh, there are many of us that came from a very legalistic, fundamentalist kind of a background. Some of you grew up... Um, in, in churches that were very legalistic, that it wasn't so much about your growth in Christ in your heart. It was just a matter of keeping the rules and making sure you kept the rules. And so in that particular context, you actually may have a tendency to still think that you can measure yourself by what you have done and say, God, look at me. See, now, now I can stand before you. Now I'm, the, now I am, I'm pleasing you by, by all these things that I have done. Now, certainly God calls us to live our lives and to do things that honor him, but legalism says that you're measuring yourself and your spirituality by those things. And so it's false teaching that creeps back into your walk with God. And so you might have a lingering presence there. It needs to be scrubbed away. And then let's just think about pop culture and the false teachers that are out there in pop culture that, that creep into the church, don't they? Sometimes because you're surfing or sometimes because you like it, you, you, you listen to people, I don't know about you, but Christians listen to people like Oprah Winfrey. just want to tell you, Oprah Winfrey is not an authority on how to live. And when she quotes scripture, 
it's usually very distorted. Another one would be Dr. Phil. Remember when he first got on the TV? Well, Dr. Phil said, and Dr. Phil this, and Dr. Phil that. Or Mark Levin, Rush Limbaugh. Now, because you're a good fighting conservative, you want to bring these things in. And friends, that can hinder your growth in Christ. And in particular, if you're a teacher of God's truth, those things can hinder you from being a faithful teacher because you're tainted by a false teaching that is not necessarily coming on the guise of Christianity, but it is influencing you nonetheless. So Paul here is saying, listen, if you want to move from the place of being a dishonorable vessel, a common vessel, a vessel that really is, is, is really nothing great to look at, so to speak, but to be now a useful vessel, a vessel that, that is ready, a vessel that, that is truly honoring and pleasing him, He's saying, scrub away at that false teaching that is still residing in you. Cleanse yourself from that. And so the point is that an honorable vessel is one that is clean. And the reason that the honorable vessel is clean is because that vessel is willing to acknowledge the presence of false teaching and root it out with spiritual cleansing. Now, friends, here's, here's the, the, the kind of the big context picture. If we just came to this passage by itself, we would look at this cleansing and say, oh, then I need to cleanse myself of sin and make it generalized. But Paul is focusing in here on teaching, in particular, being a faithful teacher and the false teaching that can, can, can get into your heart and can have an effect on the body of Christ and your own Christian walk. So the results of cleansing are threefold. Notice what it says. You'll be set apart. You'll be set apart. Now the reality is, at the moment of your salvation, you were sanctified. You were declared holy by God. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks down at you, he looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ and says, you are holy. But he also says that because you're holy, now be holy. In other words, there's another aspect of sanctification. We call it progressive sanctification. This is your growth to become uh, like Jesus Christ. This is your exercising yourself toward godliness. And the idea here then is you will be set apart. You will be in this process. You'll be moving and continuing to move in this progressive way toward being like Jesus Christ. So now you're useful because you're growing. You're, you're maturing in Christ. Secondly, you'll be useful to the master. You're useful. You're, there are some things that a, a, a dishonorable vessel cannot be used for. But now because you're cleansing yourself of false teaching, you are freed now to be useful as a teacher, to be faithful in that context. Now you go to a restaurant, I'm sure you've experienced this before, and they bring out your beautiful steak on a plate that has a little bit of egg crusted in on it. You probably are going to say, yeah, I need a new plate or I need a new steak. Or if you get a, a fork that has some little food on there that's kind of crusted because it's just dirty and it went through the wash but it didn't come off, you can say, I need a new fork. You want it cleansed. You want it clean. That's what God is saying. I, I want people, I want teachers, I want those who are handling the word to be clean. And certainly there's an application of dealing with the sin in your life. But the focus here is of being careful about false teaching and its presence in the church. Be careful about these word wars, these irreverent babble, and the kind of teaching that Hymenaeus and Philetus were promoting in the church. And finally, you'll be ready for every good work. This is the goal. I am here, master, ready to be used. I'm not sitting on the bench. I'm ready to play. Now, that's how you become an honorable vessel. Now let's look, secondly, at what I'm saying is remaining an honorable vessel. There's some things now that are just what you need to do as an honorable vessel. And Paul divides it really into two parts. There's a lot of running going on in this passage. There's fleeing and there's pursuing. There's movement going on here. And he says, flee, first of all, youthful passions. And when we read a phrase like that, we tend to think about sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. 
the youthful passions that Paul is addressing here are the tendencies that come along with youthfulness. Just listen to how one commentator puts it. These youthful desires are not just the sexual desires, but impatience, self-assertion, self-indulgence, not to mention the hunger for novelty, the contempt for routine, the agitation verging on violence, the lack of prudent measure that mark the immature of any chronological age. These vices just noted are no monopoly of the young. So he's saying here, Paul is calling on all who desire to be honorable vessels that they avoid and scrub out of their lives these youthful passions. As you are interacting with other people in the church, as a teacher, how do you interact? How do you behave? Are you arrogant? Headstrong? Are you temperamental? Are you biased? Are you intolerant? Are you quick-tempered? Are you self-assertive? Now, this is what it looks like in our contemporary context. If everyone is reading XYZ book, then I feel I have to, meet, I have to read it. See, that's a youthful passion. It's the latest book. This is the answer to Christianity. I've got to have that book. I've got to be doing what everyone else is doing. That's a youthful passion. If it's cool to read John Calvin or Martin Luther or C.S. Lewis, then I want to be cool too. So I'm going to start reading those guys. It's a youthful passion. If it's hip and trendy to be following and listening to Rob Bell or Mark Driscoll or John Piper or Tim Keller or whoever you want to put in the list, then I need to be reading all of their books and I need to be listening to all of their podcasts and I need to be going to all of their conferences. It's a youthful passion. Because this is the latest. This is the the greatest This is the the thing. This is what's in. This is what's trendy within Christianity. When I first came to California, one of the big names I kept on hearing was Rob Bell, Rob Bell, Rob Bell. And I I listened to a sermon from Rob Bell. I watched some videos to Rob Bell, and I just like, uh, there's a problem here. And I talked with people that were saying, oh, we love Rob Bell and that kind of stuff. And there was a a kind of a disconnect. They thought that he he was the greatest thing. He's one of the key pastors, used to be one of the key pastors of Mars Hill Church in Michigan, and he's a, he was a leading spokesman of the emergent church, which is now a thing of the past for the most part. But I would say that he is a contemporary false teacher. And much of the church followed him and listened to him and downloaded him and thought that his words were, were impactful and profound. You know what he's doing now? He's no longer in the ministry. He's working for Oprah Winfrey and hosts a talk show where he continues to espouse his false teaching, his false view of Christ, his false view of the church. How easily the church is willing to go after the next best popular preacher just because he's the next best popular preacher. This is all the kind of stuff that is a youthful passion. Hey, if church planning is the next best thing, guess what? Then I'm going to do it. Although that's not how our church started. Um, It was kind of like, okay, Rod, I want you to do this. Like, uh, I've never done this before. But there was kind of like, there's been like a movement. Oh, you know, this is what we're doing. This is the next thing. Again, youthful passions. And then finally, if serving in a soup kitchen or a rescue mission is in vogue in Christian's culture, then I need to make sure that it's part of my ministry portfolio. Now, friends, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the activities that I've just mentioned here. There's nothing sinful necessarily about them. Reading a good Christian book that has been recommended to you is a good thing, right? Sitting at the feet of men like Calvin Luther or other people that may have, have, have really impacted the body of Christ for years is, is a good thing. Following faithful preachers and teachers of the word of God so that you can grow in Christ is certainly helpful. Serving in what are called mercy ministries definitely have their place. But what, what's, what the focus here is this. It's not the activity. It's the reason why you're doing what you're doing. And it's a youthful passion. It's a wrong reason. 
It's this youthful passion. I've got to be doing what's popular. I've got to be doing what's in and hip. And friends, we can leave ourselves open to embracing false teaching and welcoming false teachers because we are becoming popular or because both of them are becoming popular in the church context. Now, friends, this is not a behavior that is unique to youth. This is behavior that is true for all of us. And that was what was said earlier. These vices just noted are not a monopoly of the young. So we're to flee all of these tendencies toward arrogance and being headstrong and temperamental and saying, this is what it is. Now, we are to pursue, we are to run in a different direction. And we're to run after, we use the, the broad word godliness here to describe these four words that are being talked about. Paul is saying, know what you're running from, youthful passions, and know what you're running to. And as you're interacting with people in the church, flee these youthful passions. Push aside these tendencies to just to to, to be angry with someone because they're they're believing something a little different than you. Maybe because they've listened to someone on their iPod that you would disagree with. There's a different way of handling that rather than a youthful passion that just gets out of control. How are you to respond? Paul gives four words together that give us the picture of godliness. There's righteousness. That's the state of heart and mind which is in harmony with God's law. And the idea here is these are attitudes of honoring God and his word. It doesn't, it doesn't offer some you know, helpful hints for happy living. No, it, it, it takes people to the commandments of God that are for our good. It's a pursuit after righteousness. It's a pursuit after following his glory and his word. Secondly, there's faith, which is a humble and dynamic confidence in God and his promises. The idea there is this. You have such great faith in God that he is mighty, he's sovereign, he's just, he's holy, that he hears the prayers of his saints and will act on their behalf, that he can do far more than you are able to do in your own strength. And you know that by faith because you trust him that what he says is true and that he keeps his promises. Love, this is a deep personal affection for all in particular, the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, in particular that are ensnared in the bondage of false teaching. There's a love for them. Rather than getting annoyed or angry at those struggling with false teaching, you see them in their bondage and you love them. You fight against your own sinful selfishness because you care about their soul. You're willing to give your time to help them out of their spiritual bondage. You're willing to listen to someone who is hurting. You're willing to befriend someone who's lonely. And sometimes it means a love that is willing and courageous to talk to a brother or sister who is in sin with the aim of restoring them back to God. This is all love. And then there's peace, which is an, an eager understanding of those to whom you are ministering. Peace isn't something that just happens. It requires a deliberate pursuit of peace. It may involve time. It may involve listening and understanding. So so Paul is taking these four words and saying, listen, you need to be righteous. You need to pursue that. You need to pursue faith. You need to pursue love. You need to pursue peace. These are areas in your life as a teacher that you need to now begin running toward rather than allow, allow the passions of youth to take over. And friends, let me tell you something. The passions of youth are natural. You don't sit around and say, hmm, I wonder what I should do. I think I'll go with the passions of youth today, and then maybe next week I'll do, you know, righteousness, faith, and love. Um, No, the passions of youth, you don't have to think about them. They just rise up. And so when you're dealing with false teaching, here's the point. How are you going to respond? How are you going to interact with it? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to get upset? And are you going to explode? Are you going to be arrogant? Are you going to be bombastic in the whole thing? Now, he also says here that you're going to be doing this along with others who are also 
trying to cleanse themselves. These are the ones with a pure heart. You're not alone in this. You need to work together and stick together. So there's a sense in which Paul is recognizing that even within the body of Christ, there are many people who have a pure heart who are trying their best to be faithful teachers, to deal with false teaching in a way that truly honors God. The context of the church should be a safe place where God's children lovingly work side by side to root out both false teaching as well as false teachers. The question is, are you willing to be an honorable vessel to do that? And are you willing to maintain and remain being that kind of honorable vessel by fleeing youthful passions but pursuing godliness for his glory? Now, this is all set up to say, all right, now this is how you serve. This is how you serve in the context of being an honorable vessel. The question Paul now addresses is this. How will the servant of God speak as he serves in God's house? How will he conduct himself verbally as he interacts with those who are espousing teaching and ideas that run contrary to Scripture? first thing Timothy needs to know is this. He needs to remember his place. He's in a great house, and he is not the master. He's the pastor. Big difference. He's the Lord's servant, literally slave, not the Lord himself. He stands, yes, with the, res- the representative authority from Christ when he opens up God's word, but not as the authority himself. Let me just kind of paint the picture. Just because I, as the pastor teacher here, say, this is what you should do, it doesn't mean that it is necessarily true. I know that comes as a shock to you. But if I'm going to be saying something to be true, it needs to be backed up with what the Scripture says. My job is simply to proclaim God's truth and to teach God's truth. And so the practical application of God's truth in your life is an area that you might come to me and say, I'm not sure that you know, uh, there's a possibility we may have to leave this area and go, I don't know, to the East Coast and be in New Hampshire or something like that for various reasons, and we don't know what to do, and pastor, we want, we want to hear some advice from you. And what they're asking is, make a decision for us. I'm not going to make the decision for you. That's not my job. My job is to show you God's truth and to help you apply the principles of God's word so that you, before God, can make a decision that honors him. Okay? It's a huge difference there. And Timothy is in the same place. He is the pastor, but he is not the ultimate final authority. Jesus Christ is. He's the master of the house. But having said that, to be the Lord's servant in this teaching capacity is a great Huge, wonderful responsibility. So he stands in a long line of men like Moses, the prophets, and David, even the Lord himself, as a servant of the Lord. And with such a great responsibility, a responsibility to behave and act in public in a way that would please and give a proper reflection of the master, Jesus Christ himself, who's the master of the house. He needs to make sure that what he says and how he says it honors his master. Now, in our home, oftentimes, we have four kids, you know that, four kids, and uh, through their, uh, their years growing up, there have been events that they've gone to, there have been things that they've been a part of, and before they leave the house, we say to them, all right, remember, you're a Christian. And remember, secondly, you're a Phillips. Remember, third, you are a member of Gateway Bible Church. And typically the thing we're talking about relates to school functions. So and say, remember, you're representing Redwood Christian Schools. What are we saying in that? We're saying how you act, what you say, is a reflection of those areas in your life, of those arenas that you are a part of. And the vessel here is a reflection of the Christ and the church 
but they serve. And so Paul is stressing to Timothy here, an honorable vessel has to serve his master in a way that conforms to what the master desires or wants. So he lays out for Timothy and for us how we are to interact with those who are caught up in the grip of false teaching. And so he gives some instructions. Instruction number one. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must not be quarrelsome. Friends, the teacher of God's word should not allow himself to be caught up in all sorts of different quarrels. Why? Look at what it says. You know that they breed, well, they, 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 they cause damage. We saw that earlier. But have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know, because they breed quarrels. Now, because the Lord's servant or slave is cleansed and consistently pursuing Christ, he will, be, he will not be caught off guard by people who want to wrangle about words. He's not giving in to youthful passions and needlessly jumping into the fray of arguing. So Paul describes these people in two ways. They're foolish. That's the Greek word moros, from which we get the word moron. They are ignorant, literally uneducated, uninformed in the things of God. All right? This is why they're... It's a false teaching because they do not understand the truth of God. They have come to a conclusion that is the distortion of the truth of God. Let me give you an example. When I was pastoring in Michigan many years ago, um, there was a young man about in late 20s who said, Hey, pastor, I want to get together with you. There's something I want to share with you that's really heavy on my heart and I think is really important and um, I I need to talk to you about it. I said, Oh, it's fine. I'd love to meet with you. So we set up a time to meet and um, he comes into my office, and when he comes into my office, you can tell he is already agitated. He's already kind of like, his juices are flowing, okay? He, he has something that he wants to say. He has something that is important. He's already on the defensive. And he, he, he was convinced, this is what he said, he's convinced that the new international version of the Bible was from the pits of hell, and that the true Bible was the King James Version. Now, there are all sorts of discussions about that topic, and my, my point here is not to get into that necessarily, but I listened to him, and I did my best to be courteous and to listen to him through all of what he said, because I'd heard all the arguments before, so I thought, because he had walked in with a plastic bag. And so he said, Pastor Rod, I want to show you something. So he pulled out of this plastic bag two stacks of floppy disks. Now, for those of you younger folk, <laughs> floppy disks, disks are, are about yay size, what, two and a half inches? Um, and this is what we used to use as our iPods um, and our, what, flash drives. Um, and you had to load multiple times in order to actually get them to work, right? Um, so this is from years ago. Just bear with me. But here's what he said. He says, Pastor Rod... This stack is the NIV. This stack is the King James. Do you understand the problem? As I'm thinking, I'm thinking, okay, I don't understand the problem. I'm, I'm not following the bouncing ball, all right, and the logic that's going on here. And so I said, no, I, I, really, I really don't understand what you're trying to get at. He says, well, let me explain to you. And he's getting a little frustrated because I'm not, you know, it's not obvious to me, right? And so he says, this stack is the NIV. And there are 11 floppy disks. This stack is the King James. And there are 14 floppy disks. Clearly, Pastor, clearly, the editors of the NIV have left out huge portions of the Bible. Now, there are times in ministry you're saying, Lord, I do not want to show him how much I am laughing on the inside at what I'm hearing here. But he was a brother. He was passionate. And so I challenged him, but I I thought, is is, is he actually for real? 
Am I really hearing what he is saying? And if you're still maybe foggy as to what he's saying, he's saying, listen, if, if there are 14 floppy disks, that means there is more data on these 14 floppy disks than on the NIV. There's less data. Therefore, the less data means they've left out much of the Bible. He's not actually comparing the Bible side by side. And of course, I'm thinking to myself, I grew up on the King James. I love the King James but there are a lot of extra letters in the King James. Um, for example, things like loveth and cometh and heareth and creepeth and moveth, if you feel what I'm saying. There's lots of extensions to word that you say, once you get rid of all those Fs, it's going to diminish the size of the data that's going to be recorded on the floppy disk. Now, he had been caught up with a championing of a teaching so much so that he was willing to embrace this kind of foolish, and in my mind, moronic thinking. And friends, that can happen. That can happen when we are not thinking straight. That can happen with the body of Christ. And so I want you to remind you what Paul says here. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. He left that day, and I was just trying to be kind and to explain and give some answers as to why he did not like what I had to say, and he went out angry. And he started to talk with someone else about his discs and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, those people came to me and said, did you hear what he said? Now, my point here isn't to mock someone, but it's an illustration that was real. To say, we can, we can allow our thinking to go all sorts of different directions because we're embracing a false teaching. We stop thinking logically and clearly. Probably the best commentary on these people is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look if you would, please. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. Here's what it says, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach anything, any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship, or the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That sounds like cleansing to me, right? This person's working out of a heart that has been cleansed. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. All right? They're foolish, they're uneducated, they're ignorant. And yet, they can be within the body of Christ. And we as the body of Christ have a responsibility to do what? To teach them, to reach out to them. And so there's an attitude that we must have. We must not be quarrelsome. Now, Paul is not saying here, don't say anything. I mean, there, there clearly is a time when we need to speak against foolishness and ignorance, but there's a way that we go about it. Paul is saying, don't respond to these people in the same way that they are responding to you. Don't be a quarrel breeder by your action and words. Don't be a theological Rottweiler. You know what that is? Every time you see some little form of false teachings, that's not true. You're in a small group. You're like, oh, no, 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 you can't say that. So now people are just like afraid to say anything. No, that's, that's, not, that's not how a teacher is to be. Instead, the Lord's teacher must be compassionate. Just notice what he says here. Notice the words, kind to everyone. This is describing someone who is helpful, peaceful. Paul uses the word in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to refer to his own behavior, and there he uses himself along with the analogy of a nursing mother who's tenderly caring for a child as an illustration of his love for the Thessalonian people and how he wants to nurture them. There's a kindness that is going on here. 
Husbands, do you correct your wives in kindness? Parents, do you correct your children in kindness? Can you talk to your spouse or your children about your concerns for their behavior without yelling, without arguing, without name-calling? Paul says, be kind to everyone because kindness is a step toward repentance. Secondly, able to teach. Now, this is not just talking about the ability to handle God's word. I think there's, there's a relational thing that Paul is addressing here. Certainly, this person needs to be able to handle the word of God to be able to present it and to teach it effectively, but there's a sense in which here this person has the capacity by their example, by their lifestyle, by their relationship with with other people so that they are respected by, by those people and are willing to be taught by those people. You see, if you're the kind of person that just fleshes out your youthful passions, people don't want to listen to you. If you're a spiritual Wattweiler, it's like every time someone has a question, you're jumping on them. They're not going to come and sit down at Starbucks with you. You might bring a bone with you or something like that. It's not going to, you're not going to be teachable. You're not going to be the kind of person that's, that's going to be heard. That's the point here. You're able to teach because you've established the relationships with those people. You're patiently enduring evil. The leader is one who sets an example of tolerance and patience with those who are in error. It doesn't mean that he doesn't speak. It just means that he is a unifying influence. He is patiently enduring. He is willing to respond to criticism, to opposition, to, to error in a patient manner without becoming resentful because he has a goal in mind. He has an agenda before him. And that is now having listened, having endured, to then to begin to nurse the conversation back toward what the scriptures actually say. And friends, it's so easy for us to get our emotions up in the context of false teaching. And then gently correcting. With patience and gentleness, the teacher must open up God's word and explain from the scriptures what they say. He's not correcting in anger or frustration or bitterness, but he is recognizing that even the the finding out or the the knowledge of this false teaching is now a, an opportunity to reveal to the congregation or to that small group or to that individual what the scriptures actually say on this topic. If this false teaching didn't come up, you may not be addressing the topic with those people. And so it's an opportunity that God has given. No, the job of the teacher is to patiently teach with kindness and gentleness from the word of God and let the word of God speak for itself. You explain it, you teach it, you expose it, you illustrate it, but you let the word of God do what the word of God does. Now this idea of gentleness, it's a word that is used in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 where Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. And it's, it's the idea, the picture, in, the, in, in secular Greek, it's, it's a word that is used to describe a horse that has been broken. And the idea is this, this great power that is now under control. So a gentle person in this context is someone who has a capacity to totally just go, with the truth of God's word and just knock this false teaching silly. But they are restraining that. They're saying, I want to be gentle. I want to nurture. I want to be careful. I want to be loving because I want to win this person, not just win the argument. Now, what are the implications of this? And this is what I love. See, this is where it's all heading. This is where Paul is going. This is the ultimate reason why he's saying, this is why you need to be this kind of false teacher, or, or uh, true teacher, faithful teacher. Notice the implications. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
I put next to the word perhaps the words who knows. You don't know what God is going to do through a faithful teacher, through standing for him in a way that brings honor to him, in a way that goes against maybe your fleshly desires. God can do incredible things, even to people that are standing in the thick of false teaching, that are embracing it, that are promoting it. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, here's the picture. They are ensnared. They've been captured by the devil. They are believers who have been led astray. And perhaps through your manner and your handling carefully of the word of God and your restraint away from your youthful passions, they'll actually listen and hear and repent. Now just remember who's writing this. Paul the Apostle who was a great persecutor of the church. So Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, (laughs) if you need an example, I'm here. Perhaps God may grant repentance. And this person you think is a lost cause is not a lost cause because God may still have things to do with them. Let me leave you with three things now just to take home and to consider. Number one, I want to encourage you to review. I want want to encourage you, as it says up there, to consider what false teaching do you need to scrub from your life? And what do I mean by that? What books are sitting on your bookshelf? What songs or sermons are you listening to on your iPod or your, your iPhone? Whose opinion and what authority do you tend to turn to if it's not the word of God? Is there any questionable or false teaching that is present in your life? Let me throw out a couple of other examples, just maybe some practical things that you may or may not be aware of, just, just to help you consider some of the things that I'm saying. In the, in the arena of music, there is a group out there called Jesus Culture. And you might have Jesus Culture on your, on your phone. You might actually like their songs. But do you know that Jesus Culture comes from a root, which is Bethel Church up in Reading, that is not preaching the gospel, that preaches a false gospel? And yet their music today is popular. And in my era... It was Phillips, Craig, and Dean. You guys remember them? Phillips, Craig, and Dean? But they were oneness Pentecostals. That's what they are, which means they don't believe in the Trinity like you and I believe. They believe that it's just the Holy Spirit now, that God the Father became God the Son and is now God the Holy Spirit. They've got their theology wrong, but we listen to their songs and think they're great. Well, are we allowing because of a a lack of vigor on our part, false teaching to creep into areas of our lives that we are meditating or thinking are just part of the background that can influence our thinking and our behavior toward Christ-likeness. So what false teaching do you need to scrub from your life? I would encourage you, I would challenge you to consider that. Secondly, repent. Repent, reorient your heart to God through confession forgiveness, and a restored Christ-centered focus. And I, I don't know exactly whom I am speaking to with this, but I want to encourage you to repent. You, you know if there is false teaching in your heart that you've been hiding, you've been harboring, you've been nursing, you've been playing around with. I'm just calling on you from God's truth, from the gospel to repent and to confess to God what you've been doing, and now to seek the forgiveness and to restore your pursuit toward Christ-likeness. We can't play around with false teaching. Finally, refresh. Start from the basics. Start from the beginning. 
on my web browser, I have this little circular thing. I use Firefox. You guys may know what I'm talking about. And you click the refresh button. What does it do? It just goes back to the beginning again and resets everything. And maybe what you need to do is you need to kind of do a spiritual refresh and say, I, I need to kind of reboot the system here and steady, uh, steady my heart toward the things of God in such a way that I am having a regular time in the word, that I'm spending a regular time in prayer, that I'm communing with the Lord, that I am, I am at present in church on a regular basis, that I'm involved in the small groups actively, that I'm reading helpful, recommended resources that are orthodox, that we can trust, that I'm continuing to become a growing student of the word of God. Friends, this is God's call to us as we seek to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. We don't endure by osmosis. We endure by working out what God has revealed to us through the apostle Paul to deal and to root out and to cleanse ourselves from the, the presence of false teaching and to be the kind of people that are passionate about following the Lord Jesus Christ in a healthy, biblical way. Lord, help us today. There's a lot of, for us to consider. There's a lot for us to chew on from this text. And Lord, you are concerned with the kind of teaching that takes place, not only from um, up front here, this pulpit, Lord, but even in the classrooms that we have with the kids and at men's group and women's Bible studies and other gatherings that we may have and even one-on-one -on -one conversations. May we at Gateway determine that what we teach, that what we preach, that what we share, that we've done the best that we can to reflect the truth of God's word and that we're not somehow riding a wave of, of false teaching, but Lord, we're seeking to honor you from your word and with the strength of the Holy Spirit to impact lives, to move people toward the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be vessels of honor and Lord, that we would be ready to be used for your glory, for your purposes, for your kingdom. In your precious name, amen.